This is episode number 239 with Sharon Salzberg. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Just a quick little reminder that if you want to listen to my episodes one day earlier than they are released anywhere else, you have to download the app Himalaya and follow my show. Himalaya is free, super easy to use, and has every podcast you can think of. I love that you can leave comments under each episode and even create episode playlists. So make sure you check it out today. Sharon Salzberg is a pioneer in the field of meditation, a world-renowned teacher and New York Times best-selling author. She has played a pivotal role in bringing meditation and mindfulness into mainstream since 1974. She is the co-founder of the first Western Meditation Center in the U.S., the Insight Meditation Society. She has also authored 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness, Loving Kindness, and Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Acclaimed for her down-to-earth and relatable teaching style, she offers a modern approach to Buddhism teachings, making them instantly accessible. She writes regularly for On Being, The Huffington Post, The Medium, and hosts her own podcast, The Meta Hour, featuring the top leaders and voices in the meditation and mindfulness movement. And in today's episode, we chat about her story and how she got into Buddhism, what it was like losing her mother at only nine years old, how we can heal from trauma, how to lift and let go of pain and suffering, my favorite mantra when I'm feeling challenged, her thoughts on if you can completely heal from trauma, I loved her take on this, her favorite Buddhism principles that have impacted her life the most, how to love your enemies, yep, you heard me right, what she's working on within herself at the moment, which most people can relate to, the one book that she would put in the school curriculum, where to start if you are new to meditation, her morning routine and meditation practice, the saying to help bring your meditation into your daily life, her meditation advice, plus so much more. And for everything that Sharon and I mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that is over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 239. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to read the review of the week. And this week, it's a five-star review from Bloom Fiercely Mama, and it's titled Brilliant Content. And she says, I love the people Melissa brings on to interview. Her content and questions always seem to hold relevance for me. Love her easy listening voice and vibe. Thank you so much, honey. I'm so grateful and I'm so glad that you love tuning in each week. And don't forget that if you want to be the review of the week for next week, 
All you have to do is head on over to iTunes and leave me that five-star review right now. I would be so grateful. And now, without further ado, let's bring on the incredible Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Oh, good grief. I had a piece of toast with some almond butter and jam. Mm, Almond butter is so good. I love almond butter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, can you tell us your story and how you got into Buddhism and how you got to where you are today doing the work that you now do. Like, how did this all unfold for you? It's very interesting. I I went to college in Buffalo, New York, and actually I just today booked my plane ticket to Buffalo. I'm going back to teach, and it's the first time I've been there in like well over 40 years. So it's very strange. So when I was, I went to college when I was 16, and when I was this, sophomore in college, I took an Asian philosophy course. And really, honestly, as far as I can remember looking back, it was almost a matter of happenstance. It's like I looked at the schedule and I thought, oh, that's convenient. That's on Tuesday or something. I'll take that one. And it completely changed my life. And a part of the reason was that within that course, as they talked about the Buddha and Buddhism, They talked about the Buddha's commentary that there's suffering in life, that this is natural, it's inevitable, it's a part of life. And I, like many people, had had a childhood that was uh, full of chaos and loss and confusion. And like for many people, my family system was one where this was never, ever spoken about. And so I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside of me and that terrible feeling of isolation, of being so different and kind of on the margins of life rather than in the center. And here was the Buddha saying, no, everybody suffers, not to the same degree or in the same way, but this is a part of life. And so that in itself was hugely liberating. And then I heard in that course that there were these practices you could do, that there were actually practical methods you could undertake that could make you be happier. They could help you. And these were called meditation. So I looked around Buffalo, and this was 1970, and, you know, it was long before there were yoga centers everywhere, you know, and I just didn't see it anywhere. So the university had an independent study program where if you created a project that they liked and they approved of, you could go anywhere in the world. The theory was for a year, and you'd come back and do your final year there. So I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they accepted it. So off I went. I left in the fall of 1970, and I began my first intensive meditation retreat, because that's the the form within which I learned in January 1971. Wow. And I was listening somewhere that you had a huge life-altering experience when you were a child that radically shifted your life with your family. Can you tell us about that? Uh, I had many, actually. 
I wrote a book several years ago called Faith, which was is sort of like my own spiritual autobiography. It's like my faith journey. And so I calculated in the writing of that book, looking back at my life, my childhood, and I realized that by the time I went to college at the age of 16, I'd lived in five different family configurations and every single one of them shifted from some kind of trauma or or death. Like my parents divorced when I was four and my father just disappeared. I lived with my mother. She died when I was nine. And then I went to live with my father's parents whom I hardly knew. And it just went on and on. And so I I look back at that moment, you know, when I was in college and I took that course and I'm actually fascinated by it because I wasn't content to like stay there and read books about it or you know, study up on it. It's like something in me just felt so strongly. I must learn how to actually do this. And that was really like the magic moment. Can you tell us about your mother passing? Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, it was a, and actually um, in faith in that book, I have a chapter about despair because also within the Buddhist context or, or that understanding, Doubt is not an enemy of faith. Doubt is actually an enrichment for faith because we need to question and learn and decide for ourselves what's true, not to take anyone else's word for it. And so someone asked me as I was writing the book, what do I feel is the opposite of faith? And I said, despair. I want to feel just disconnected and torn apart from everything. And so the reason I bring all that up is because um, my mother's death and my experience of it came back very strongly when I was meditating in Australia. I was doing an intensive retreat there, obviously years later, and it just poured out of me and I was in a state of actual despair for some time. So until I kind of wove it all together and and kind of cleanse that residue, you know, of that experience. But I w- I was living with my mother, her brother and sister, and I was home alone with her and she started hemorrhaging. So I was nine years old. I called an ambulance, called my grandmother. She went off to the hospital and uh, she died about two weeks later. I never actually saw her again. So this is also the era and the kind of cultural context where, you know, children did not go visit their parents necessarily in the hospital or certainly didn't go to funerals and Things weren't discussed openly. It wasn't like a ready avenue, you know, to to deal with those feelings. And so even though I had come to a state of some much greater balance and happiness through my meditation, when I went to Australia, I'd already been practicing for quite some years. and, And the incompleteness of it really, and my processing of the incompleteness of my processing of it really brought it all back and so but also it was part partly being an Australian being in the nature of it and the the feeling of it that was part of the healing yeah so that's huge like experiencing that at such a young age that is huge and so for people listening that have gone through trauma we've all had varying degrees of trauma, how can we move through them? 
Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's so many modalities and there's such a, there's such a sense of process, you know, a lot, when you say move through them, it also depends on how recent and how intense and what you might choose to do. And, you know, a great deal of the healing, I think, is about connection. That was my experience. I had to reconnect in ways that that's despair. It's right. The connection is torn apart. It's torn asunder. And so I had to rebuild a sense of connection to my practice, to the world around me, to friends. You know, when we're really in that state, someone in a very loving way is reaching out to help us. We, we can't accept it. We don't even see it. So for many people, you know, it's a process of, it's reconnecting in, in one way or another. And it's a lot about loving kindness. It's a lot about compassion for oneself. And for, uh, in terms of just kind of the technique of it, a lot of it is about titrating, you know, like, and so is trauma therapy. There, there are ways of, you know, you don't want to just re-traumatize yourself and plunge into an experience and relive it and relive it. And, you know, there are ways of kind of getting, as one person recently said to me, it's like a little homeopathic dose, you know? Mm-hmm. You want to be able to experience things directly and then know you can leave. You can bring your attention somewhere else. You're not actually there anymore. You're observing it or you're even coming very, very close to it, but you're not there anymore. As one person described to me, one therapist said, it's like you want to be in the elevator and know you can press the button for the floor you want to be on. You know, so, um, and I say all that because sometimes people get this kind of over-heroic model. Like, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to work through my suffering and I'm going to come through the other side. And it's just this miserable experience. You know, it's more about, within the Buddhist tradition, suffering itself is not considered redemptive. It's not the point. It's not the suffering that heals us. It's the way we relate to the suffering and the way we relate to the joy and the way we relate to ourselves. That's the healing. And so being able to have some direct experience of the pain, not hiding from it, not denying it, but not like endlessly drowning in it either, to have compassion for ourselves instead of judgment and that sense of isolation and it's only me and um, this is forever, this is the only thing I'll ever feel. So one of the essences of, of mindfulness practice, we would say, is... We want to look for the add-ons. You know, it's bad enough that we have some terrible heartache. But on top of that, we may be adding, this is the only thing I will ever feel. Or no one else has ever felt anything like this. I'm all alone. And so we want to have a very open experience of the the actual pain. And watch for those add-ons because they only make things worse. And we learn how to relinquish them. That's that's a very key thing in mindfulness practice. Yeah, so many people are suffering, though, right now in this world. Like, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. And it definitely pulls on my heartstrings. So yeah, what advice do you have for someone who may be sitting in suffering right now? It could be, like, see where you can connect. You know, sometimes... I mean, I've had friends, one friend is coming to mind with a massive, terrible depression who, you know, and there are many modalities one tries at once. It's not one single answer, but, you know, one of the things that 
was most healing for him was actually helping other people. Mm, service. You know, so he, he, yeah, he'd go out and, you know, he was a, is a, you know, very accomplished, brilliant writer. And he couldn't write at that time. And he would go to some agency and he was making sandwiches for people who were homebound and, and couldn't, you know, get food. And mm. it was actually very satisfying for him. It was, it was quite fulfilling. You know, that might be it or, or finding a community, you know, you're not alone. You're definitely not alone. And, you know, having that sense of recognition and then there, there are actual modalities of, of working with traumatic or really, really painful materials so that the key is a kind of balance, you know, it's not to just get overwhelmed again. And it's also not to seek to push away or deny what you're experiencing, but finding a more balanced relationship, which will mean, you know, being in a certain place and leaving it and then being in a certain place and leaving it. So that's like a skills training. Yeah, absolutely. I know for me, when I feel pain or suffering, yeah, my attention is very much focused inward and on myself. And as soon as I Mm -hmm. turn my attention outward to being of service or to helping other people or to even just Mm -hmm. asking my husband or, is there anything I can do to help you or what can I do to support Mm -hmm. you today? That suffering and that darkness definitely lifts. So I mm-hmm. I totally agree. And and also I wanted to touch on the community part. You know, when you do feel that pain or that suffering, like you aren't alone. And mm-hmm. just putting your hand up and saying, Hey, I'm feeling this and getting support, it's so important because you know, there's 300 million people suffering with depression right now in the world. 300 mm-hmm. million. That is a lot of people. And, you know, last year for me, I lost one of my friends to suicide and Mm -hmm. it changed the way that I look at depression and suffering Mm -hmm. and pain. And I just want anyone listening to know that you're not alone. You are absolutely Mm -hmm. not alone and to reach out and you're not a burden. You know, this is something that I hear just one of my girlfriends the other day She's going through a really challenging time. And she said to me, I don't want to burden you. And I'm like, you're not burdening me. I, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if this was a burden, I'd say, hey, you know, I don't have, I, I can't hold space right now or something like that. But I said, babe, you're never a burden. Like you coming to me and saying, I need you to hold space for me. I'm going through this. Like that's a gift mm-hmm. to me. You know, it's such yeah. a gift. And so anyone listening, I just want to really inspire you to, to reach out, to get support, to, you know, whether it's from a friend or a family member or a counselor or a therapist, whatever, you are not alone and you don't have to do this on your own. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we have this terrible habit, all of us, of seeing things that are impermanent as permanent mm. or things that are moving as fixed. The state is not forever, it really isn't. Whatever terrible thing has happened, it's actually not forever. And the fact that you're seeking help is never just a one-way street. There will come a time when the very people who are helping you will feel more vulnerable and they'll reach out to you. Yes. That's just the way life is. You know, it's not like singular or it's not all moving in one direction. 
totally. One of my favorite mantras is this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. You know, reminding myself of that when I am feeling that pain or whatever it is I'm going through is that nothing is permanent. This too shall pass. It's one of my favorite mantras. I just write it down and stick it on a post-it note somewhere where you can see it whenever you're going through that challenging time. Mm-hmm. But I'd love to hear from you. Do you feel like we ever completely heal from our trauma or is there always a little bit of scar tissue or residue? I think there's probably residue, you know, but the question is how, I guess the word is activation. Some people don't like the word triggering, you know, and uh, it's a question of how activated things get and in what way. And if we remember, we have tools, you know, assuming we have tools, then remembering to use them. You know, there's such an epidemic of, of violence in, in this country, in the States, to guns. And many, many people I know have had their lives just shattered in one way or another. And so what's it like when then you go back to the school and there's a drill? Do you fall apart? Or do you have a panic attack? Or do you feel that, you know, because you know, what a situation, but also remember, you know what, I can breathe. I can get through this in a different way. So I think people often blame themselves really harshly. Like I shouldn't have gotten upset again, or should be beyond this. And sadly enough, a lot of society tells us, well, you should be beyond this. You know, you should be over this already. And uh, it's just not fair. You know, it's not true because the point isn't, cutting off all reaction. The point is having a better life so that we're not just being incapacitated by those reactions or we're dominated by those reactions. We have other ways of dealing with them, even though they'll still come up. And that also gives us much greater compassion for ourselves and much more compassion for others. And who is someone else to say how quickly you should move through something? You know, it's it's we're all on our own journey and however long it takes for you to move through something like that's your journey and one of the most beautiful things we can do is yeah hold space and have compassion for that person going through that time and not speed up their process you know it's like come on hurry up get over this like if that's current yeah. and real for them and present and alive for them right now in their body then they need to honor that and we need to honor that well i tell the story i can't remember actually which of my books but maybe more than one, because it was very impactful for me, where this woman came to talk to me once who had a terrible, terrible thing happen in her family about six months before. And she said to me, you know, my friends are they're kind of saying, like, it's time to get over it. This was not like a six-month problem, you know. And then she said something really fascinating. She said, my friends all have golden lives. Nothing ever goes wrong for them. And now I am like the symbol of life gone awry, and I make them very uncomfortable. And first of all, I don't believe for a moment nothing ever goes wrong for them, but that's like the presentation that we make to the world, you know, because it's considered shameful to to be afraid or have something going on that, that is really difficult. And so I said to her, I had this experience where, you know, sometimes you just hear these words come out of your mouth. So the first thing I heard was, I think you need new friends. 
<laughs> and then I said to her, you should meet my friends. They're all a wreck, you know? <laughs> and sometimes I'd tell this story and my friends, I have friends in the room and I say, not that I really believe you're all a wreck, you know, but <laughs> there, there can be a certain honesty about life's not always that easy. And that's true for me as well, you know? And so that pretense that society demands and that many times we pick up and the pressure, you know, to be all right, I think it's really unfair. Yes, I agree. This is where being really vulnerable is really important. But I feel like for me, vulnerability, you know, that builds trust in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And then when you feel safe, you feel like you can share what's really going on. But if there isn't that trust, that trust hasn't been built. Like I know for me, I feel a little bit more reluctant to just dive right in. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think in every relationship it's completely appropriate, you know, to reveal everything that that's going on. But I don't think we need the armor, you know, of pretending that nothing ever goes wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's so much of that on social media. So, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone's got stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everyone. And anyone who says that they don't, then run in the other direction. <laughs> so, Sharon, I'd love to hear, I love Buddhism and I love a lot of their principles, but I'd love to hear what are some of your favorite Buddhism principles that have really impacted your life? I know all of them probably have, but like any that have really changed and shifted things for you on such a huge level? Well, I mean, I think there are the kinds of principles that, first of all, like my uh, my first teacher was S.N. Goenka, and it was an intensive 10-day retreat. And the first night of the retreat, he said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. Mm. And so that idea that you don't have to believe anything, that that's not the point. The point is your own experience. And so the Buddha is very famous for having said, don't believe anything because I said it. Don't believe anything because a great elder has said it. Don't believe anything because you've read it in the sacred text. He said, put it into practice and see for yourself what's true. And I just find that a breathtaking vision of, of human life, of human capacity that we don't have to be dependent on someone else's ideas or or vision, and we don't have to just be gullible, and we can find out what's true for ourselves. And we have this capacity, and that's based on the belief also within the Buddhist teaching, that within each one of us is a capacity. It's like almost like a seed for wisdom, for love, for connection, for clarity, and that that seed, that potential is never, ever destroyed. It may be, and it usually is, like way covered over or hard to find or hard to trust. But no matter what we go through, no matter what we do in life, it's never, ever destroyed. And that was also kind of breathtaking for me, that the potential is always there to kind of come back, to reconnect, to see more clearly, to care for oneself and for others. So that's also, you know, has been very huge for me. Mm, beautiful. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, there are those, you know, challenging statements or, you know, statements that are challenging to understand and kind of live by, you know, like when the Buddha is also famous for saying, hatred will never cease by hatred. 
Hatred will only cease by love. This is a universal law. This is an eternal law. You know, and, and that's not easy, really. You know, in a hate-filled situation to think that love has any power at all, that it's not just giving in or or being meek and mild. And, and so that's a profound exploration. Mm. In your book, Love Your Enemies, How to Break the Anger Habit and Be a Whole Lot Happier, you talk about that. So I found this really fascinating, the concept of loving your enemies. Can you mm-hmm. talk to us about this? Why is it important? And because I know a lot of people listening might be thinking, no way. There's no way I can love my and no way in the world. Like they did this to me. I just can't get there and there's just no way I could do it. So can you talk to us about that and why it's important? Well, you know, it depends on what you mean by the word love. And because it's so confusing, I think I would never kind of say to somebody, well, you have to forgive or you have to love this person who has harmed you so grievously. And I often get that question a lot. Like if I'm doing something, say, on Twitter and people will write in about loving all beings, people will write in and say, well, why should I love this person who wants to destroy me? Mm. Who doesn't think I should exist because of my gender preference or some this color of my skin or something like that. Why? And so it's not, you know, a, a kind of love that is like pander to them or agree with them or try to approve of them or, you know, just kind of give up. It's something about a power of love that recognizes that, like it or not, our lives are incredibly intertwined, that, that we really kind of sink or swim together and that, you know, our lives have something to do with one another. And if we carry around a burden of hatred, we are going to be the ones who suffer. But that doesn't mean we ever want to be or need to be or should consider being necessarily in the presence of somebody again. It doesn't mean that you have to communicate with them. It doesn't mean ever that you should pretend that what they did doesn't matter. As one of my colleagues, my friend Sylvia Borstein said, forgiveness does not mean amnesia. Mm. But we tend to think it does. Like I'm working on a book right now about mindfulness, loving kindness, and social change. And I I thought about that quotation, you know, goes something like, if you just fill yourself with hatred, then it's like drinking poison, hoping that the other guy will die. Mm. And I thought, I think Gandhi said that. Yes. And I looked it up on the internet. Well, I said, I saw everything from Gandhi to Nelson Mandela to Oprah Winfrey to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to, I thought, oh, everyone seems to have said it. it. It's just wisdom. You know, so it's more in that, in the light of that, like, is there a way of relating? And it's not exactly love. I mean, compassion would probably be a more apt phrase where it's just the sense of, if it's true, which is another Buddhist tenet, that all beings want to be happy. Everybody actually wants to be happy in a deeper meaning of happiness. We want to have a sense of having a home somewhere in this life, in our bodies and our minds, with one another on this planet, and that the force of ignorance drives us to do these things that we think are going to make us happy and really 
create so much disconnection and separation and suffering for ourselves and for others. And sometimes, you know, in that kind of compassionate mode, you think, wow, you know, what a choice for a lifetime to be bitter and mm. to hurt other people. And, and because in the end, we all die. We have to let go of everything. And, and you think, wow, to devote a life to that, you know, there's a kind of poignancy to that. And, you know, like I was once teaching somewhere, I was on a panel, and someone in the audience said, he's talking about political leaders, and he said, when I look at myself, when I look at my own actions, and I've done something really hurtful or harmful, I see that it comes from a place of pain. You know, that's, that's the origination of it. But I look at these people, and they don't look like they're suffering. They look like they're pretty self-satisfied. They're having a fine time hurting other people. And it was, it was like no one on the panel really wanted to address that. So finally I said, I'm with you. You know, it's hard. Sometimes I look at people and I think, well, if you could only like look a little frayed around the edges, you know, mm. it would be easier to have some compassion for you. But the truth is we should look at our own experience because that's how we kind of understand human nature is by looking at ourselves. And, and we say, you know, those actions do come from a place of pain and they reinforce a place of separation. And in the end, you know, to die with that feeling of not being you know, close to anybody and, and nobody really caring. It's horrible. Mm. And so we can have some compassion, but compassion doesn't mean weakness. It doesn't mean you don't fight or you don't make decisions about strong boundaries or maybe, you know, seeking retribution and not in a, you know, vengeful, consumed, obsessed way, but, you know, saying something needs to be done and I'm going to try to see that it's done. One of the biggest quotes, and I don't know who said this first, it's kind of like that other poison one, mm -hmm. the quote that hurt people hurt people, yeah. that really made a huge impact in my life because before that I didn't really understand why people could be harmful and, and say nasty things. Like I couldn't quite comprehend it. And then when I mm -hmm. read that quote, I was like, oh my gosh, of course. And like you said before, like all human beings want happiness and love. And so for someone to hurt someone else, they must be hurting within themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's where the compassion piece slots in. That's why we've got to have compassion. It's not about letting them harm you and walk all over you. It's just like seeing the other side seeing the yeah. other side and going, oh, okay, I, I can see. And for me, it's made me a lot less reactive and I can kind of pause, take a breath and then see what's happening and then, you know, I can respond instead of react mm -hmm. from that place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's not always easy, but... Is very freeing because otherwise, you know, where, as one friend of mine put it, he he would describe himself as a kind of obsessive type. You know, it's like his mind grabs hold of something; he'll just go over it and over it and over it and over it. And so he got into one of those spaces around someone whose behavior he didn't really approve of, and he just went over it and over it and over it and over it and over. It. And then he said later on, after he he loosened the grip of that somewhat. 
I let him live rent free in my brain for too long. Wow. You know, that we, we kind of give over our own life energy to someone else's bad behavior and we're consumed by it and we're defined by it. And, and that's another unfortunate thing. We could be free. Mm. And, you know, none of this involves being weak. You know, somebody, uh, I was teaching somewhere the other day and somebody told me he was consumed with anger at, you know, certain political figures. And, and I basically said, is that okay? You know, do you feel okay about that? Because if you don't, I would find an empowered alternative, you know, another place to act from where you're still taking strong action, but you're not spending all that time obsessed by someone else's behavior and you're not consumed by it and you're not drinking that poison yourself. And letting them live rent-free in your mind for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good analogy. I really like that yeah. because I've I've let, you know, people live rent-free in my mind for years. And you just think, wow, look at all of that energy and brain, like that, that bandwidth, that energy and that brain yeah. space that that has taken up that I could have used on creating art or writing more books or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, serving in a different way. So I really like that. And I have an invitation for everyone listening to just contemplate who are you letting live rent-free in your mind right now? and. What are you going to do about it? It's a big question to ponder, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's our life, our our mind. We only get one of these, one chance. We may as well live it to the fullest and enjoy as much as we possibly can. So who are you letting live rent-free right now? And I'd love to hear now, Sharon, What's something that you're working on within yourself at the moment? Well, <laughs> saying no. <laughs> you know, I'm also, you know, I've been teaching since 1974. And so I've witnessed kind of the surge of interest and the real explosion, actually, of interest in mindfulness and now loving kindness practices and it feels like there's no you know there, there are no logical boundaries it's like you could you could at this point you know take this almost anywhere and especially because as you say suffering is so great and there are schools there are prisons there are hospitals there are, you know there's so many places in which you might want to apply this and and you know so i need to really say to myself you can't do everything you know and there needs to be a sense of boundaries. And going back to the days, you know, when I did more retreat time myself and, and things like that. So, I mean, I feel good about all that, but that's is definitely work. Yeah, beautiful. I know lots of people listening will be relating to that, nodding their uh-huh. head, going, yes, I need to really work on saying no and setting those boundaries and really honoring that within myself. So thank you for sharing that. Now, let's pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Now, besides all of your amazing books, let's pretend Uh that they're already in the curriculum. What is one book that you would choose? 
high school. I might go back to the Dalai Lama wrote a book quite a while ago called Ethics for a New Millennium, which was at the, you know, the millennium turn in which he talked about a kind of secular ethics or ethics that are born of not out of religious conviction or allegiance, but really out of compassion for oneself, because we also suffer when we violate that sense of harmony and compassion for others and having a a recognition of that. You know, like so many ways in which culturally, at least in the States, you know, being ethical, being kind is, is considered not that interesting, you know, uh, especially if you're in high school. You know, the, there's a certain sense, I've often said this, that kindness is like a secondary virtue, that if you can't be courageous or you can't be brilliant or you can't be wonderful, it's like, okay, be kind, it's good, you know, it's not great, but it's good, but it is great. And, you know, seeing somebody say, you don't have to be a believer, you don't have to have that sense of identification with a certain kind of religion, but just to want to have a, a better human life and let alone what it does for others and for the planet. So to to sort of re take another look at one of the things I've enjoyed in my own books, in my own writing, I realized uh, looking back is that I, I think I like to redeem words that maybe have a whole other kind of association, you know, like faith was one of them. When I would tell my friends, they'd say to me, what are you working on? I said, I'm writing a book on faith. And they'd say, why? You know, Because for so many people, the idea of faith had gotten connected to an experience, often a, a, a very real experience, a very painful experience of being silenced and not being able to ask questions and not being able to express doubt and fearing that they would be condemned. And, and so that, of course, is not at all what I meant by faith or mean by faith. And there's a part of me that actually enjoyed, you know, kind of highlighting that and lifting that up and saying, well, there's a whole other way of thinking of this. And love, you know, loving kindness or real love or other books that I've written, which are, you know, it's not easy to understand love. We mean so many different things when we use that word. And so, or love your enemies, you know, like, you know, so it's, it's kind of very much in that sense of like, Let's take another look at all these qualities. What what else might they mean? Yeah, I love that. And we'll link to that book and we'll link to all of your books in the show notes. I have to interrupt this conversation to tell you about one of today's podcast sponsors, Blue Blocks, the only blue light glasses backed by science. Now, if you follow me on social media, you will know that I love my blue blocking glasses and I wear them every day because they help alleviate digital eye strain, keep your hormones balanced, and help you get a deeper, more restorative sleep. They are made in Australia, which means they are very high quality, and all their glasses come in readers, prescription, and non-prescription. And you can even send in your own frames and have them add their lens technology to your frames. And for every pair purchased, they donate a pair of reading glasses to Restoring Vision, who then gift them to someone in need in the developing countries. How awesome is that? So to get 15% off, head to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and enter the code Melissa at the checkout. Now let's get back to the conversation. I wanted to ask you about meditation. For someone listening who 
has never tried meditation, but they want to get into it, where can they start? How can they dive into this world of meditation and mindfulness? There are lots of possibilities. I think it's good to have either a teacher or a a book or a course online or something that creates a context because, you know, when I first came back from India, I would be introduced as a meditation teacher, like in 1974, 1975, people would kind of like, oh, that's weird, and sort of sidle away. And now the single most common response I hear if I'm introduced as a meditation teacher is, oh, I should try that. I'm so stressed out. I could use some of that. But I also hear, oh, I tried that once. I failed at it. And that, of course, troubles me because we believe you cannot fail at it. That's not a possibility. There's there's no such thing. Yeah. But, you know, then if I pursue the conversation, So why do you think you failed at it? And people will say, because I couldn't keep thoughts away. I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't keep anxiety from arising. I couldn't keep sleepiness from arising. Usually it's about thoughts. You know, I couldn't make my mind blank. But that's not why we meditate. That's not the goal, you know, because we're not trying to dismiss any part of our experience. We're trying to develop a different relationship to all of our experience, including thoughts. You know, there's a way of seeing thoughts where we like take them to heart and we build a whole self image around it. And it's just a thought. And there are other ways where we can have a little more perspective and we have a choice. Do I want to pursue this or not? And so it's all about relationship. And, and that's hard to remember, you know. So to have some context where we're reminded, oh, don't worry if you have a lot of thoughts, don't worry if you get sleepy. We're just going to develop some new skills in dealing with all that stuff. That's really helpful. And it doesn't take much, you know, it's just that much understanding. And then the rest is having some structure so that you're actually doing the practice. Like I wrote one book called Real Happiness, and the title is Real Happiness, The Power of Meditation, a 28-day program. And it is actually a 28-day program for learning how to meditate or renewing a practice. And you, know, you can start with five minutes a day and hopefully work up to 15, 20 minutes a day. But always with that reminder, you know, you will experience lots of different stuff. It's really okay. I'd love to hear about your routine. Like, I love hearing about how people prime themselves for the day and set themselves up for the day. So, do you have a morning routine, a morning practice? And can you share it with us? I do. Well, I. Both my own personal experience and what I've seen in so many students and what I understand of the science of meditation is that it's the everydayness of it Mm. that is the most significant, not like an endless period of time, not like, you know, I need to do the six hours a day or it doesn't count. And in certain yogic traditions, certainly they would say the morning is the best time. You know, my own teachers would say, the best time is when you're actually going to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I just find that's the hard thing. It was hard for me. It's hard for a lot of people. We can appreciate something in the abstract that's very different than doing it. It's like when I said, you know, the miracle to me is that I didn't stay in Buffalo and just think about it, you know, or become a professor of religious studies or something. I really wanted to do it. And that's hard to do. It's hard to do five minutes a day. 
easier to think about it. And so that's a, a huge thing right there. One of my teachers once said, the most important moment in your meditation practice is the moment you sit down to do it. Because mm-hmm. in that moment, and of course you don't have to be sitting, you might be doing walking meditation, but let's say sitting. In that moment, you're saying something about believing in change, believing in yourself, wanting to put something into practice and not just think about it theoretically. You know, and so we we really need to to kind of make that leap and put it into practice. So what is your ritual around it? Oh, yes. So, so I was, I was going to say, like, you know, from that point of view, if you practice lasting at night, that's fine. It doesn't have to be in the morning. And I have students who tell me things like they drive to work and they sit in the parking lot. You know, they go in early before they need to show up, actually, because it's too chaotic at home. And, and it doesn't really have to be seen that way, but that's their experience. That's what they feel. And uh, so they sit in the parking lot, and that's fine, too. I prefer myself sitting in the morning because I feel like it helps establish a kind of platform for the rest of the day. So I get up, and, you know, maybe I have tea, and it depends. And then I try to sit for, like, 40 minutes, and it may just be 20, and then I'll start in the rest of my day. And so do you just do that one block in the morning or do you do a second meditation in the afternoon or evening? I don't usually do like a, I might, I probably do a few minutes anyway, you know, at night, but more like I, I also, I try to do that one block. And then there's this other concept that one of my teachers calls short moments many times you know, many times a day trying to take a few breaths consciously. You know, nothing, no activity that's going to be very long in carrying it out, but just take a few moments. And that's a very powerful thing to kind of break the momentum of maybe your crazy day, feeling your feet against the ground, drinking a cup of tea mindfully, doing a walking meditation from room to room as you're at work. Um, you don't have to slow down and look, you know, extremely weird, but you can use the same tools. Doing loving kindness practice, where uh, in informal loving kindness practice, we silently rest our attention on certain phrases like "May you be happy," "May you be peaceful." And I've had CEOs tell me that they sit in these meetings and around the table, and they'll, you know, silently look at everybody one by one and think, "May you be happy," "May you be peaceful," you know. So. That is a very important part of my own practice is short moments many times. And people usually, it's not hard to do. It's awfully hard to remember in the midst of busyness or craziness. And so people usually set up some kind of signal for themselves. I think the most kind of well-known is Thich Nhat Hanh suggesting, uh, don't pick up your phone on the first ring. Let it ring three times and breathe. Then you pick it up. Or people have their computers make these weird sounds. Or, you know, you set a timer or whatever it might be. Or just, you know, before every phone call, I'm going to take a few breaths. Um, Things like that. Mm, I love that. Short moments many times. I really love that. For me, I notice that I come back and have those little moments whilst I'm driving. You know, it's a great time to really Mm -hmm. do some deep breathing when I'm filling my car up with petrol, when I'm standing in the line at the post office, 
you know, those are my little reminders where I'm like, oh, deep breaths, come back. And then I also Mm -hmm. do a 20 minute practice first thing in the morning and then 20 minutes in the afternoon. And Mm -hmm. I love it. It works. I just, it's so juicy and delicious and doesn't mean every time I'm bursting with excitement to sit down, but it's what you Mm -hmm. said before. It's that daily habit. And for me, from dealing with anxiety and depression and panic attacks, like it has Mm -hmm. really eased a lot of those things for me over the years. And I've been so deeply committed to it for the past seven years. And I just, it's working for me now and I love it. That's great. So I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. So what is one thing that we can do today for our health? Just one thing to improve our health. Take a walk. Yes. Preferably outside, huh? Oh, that'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's one thing we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all the areas of our life. Be generous. Yes. Love that. And what's one thing we can do for more love in our life? Oh, practice it. Yes. Beautiful. Now, Sharon, is there anything else that you want to share with us? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you want to talk about that maybe I haven't asked you about? You've asked, you've been great (laughs) and very thorough. No, I just want to go back to that for a moment, to that thought of somebody who doesn't have a meditation practice who's interested in it. Because I really see it as an experiment. It's not to say that everybody's going to love it or, or want to continue it, but it's just, as I said, setting up a structure that you feel comfortable with that you can fulfill so that you're actually putting it into practice. You feel enough support to do that. And then you can tell. And then the very important thing is that if you're trying to assess whether meditation's done any good or is doing any good, the place to look is not that you know 10 or 20 minutes you spend formally meditating each day the place to look is at your life mm. you know because you may not see much change in that particular dedicated period but you will find you're changing that the way you speak to yourself when you've made a mistake the way you meet a stranger the way you can bring your attention back when you've gotten really distracted all of that shifts and it really moves the way you you know, let people live rent-free in your brain, all that. Yeah, you you start bringing that meditation practice into your everyday life. and Yeah, totally. Yeah, for me, it's if there is a time where I've maybe missed my second one and I start to feel that I'm a lot more reactive and agitated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can notice with my husband as well. I'm like, have you been meditating? (laughs) You know, and it's just a nice little reminder to, okay, I've got to come back. So yeah, Yeah. thank you for that advice. And I just wanted to thank you so much, not only for your time today, it's been so beautiful to connect with you and chat with you. What an honor. I'm so grateful. I love your work. And thank you. I also wanted to just honor you and thank you for all the work that you do in the world, all of your books, everything that you do, everything that you share, how you serve. You've got such a big, beautiful heart and I'm so grateful that you're out there and just 
spreading your love and being the trailblazer that you are. So my last question to you is, how can we serve you? How can I and the listeners serve you? Because you serve mm-hmm. so many of us. How can we serve you today? Well, of course, I don't think in those terms, but I mean, very sincerely, it's through your own practice. I mean, just listening to you and I found very inspiring, you know, and, and to see that, you know, this work, because it really has been my life's work and is so important and it does make a difference. And to just keep doing your practice is very important for me. We will do that. Don't you worry. So thank you so much, Sharon. I'm so honored and so grateful. Thank you for being here. Thank you. What an epic conversation. I'm so glad that you guys got to hear that. And I'm so glad that I got to share that with you. She is such an incredible woman and I highly recommend her books. And I really want to recommend to you guys that if you haven't embarked on some form of meditation practice yet, Make today the day that you do. Meditation changed my life. And it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be multiple times a day. Just start small. Start wherever you're at. And remember that you can go at your own pace. You can go at your own speed. But just begin and commit to a daily practice. And do it for three weeks. That's how long it takes to embed a new habit. And let me know how you go on Instagram. I would love to hear. And also remember that I've got heaps of guided meditations on my website too that you can check out. So I hope you guys got a lot out of today's episode. I did. And if you did, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week, which is pretty cool, I think, anyway. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading them all. I love reading what you guys get out of each episode. And it also helps me and guides me of what guests you're really enjoying. So please come and tell me what you got out of today's show. And for everything that Sharon and I mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 239. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, Angel, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here again each week, twice a week. I'm so grateful and so honored that you want to show up and you want to be the best you and you want to be the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself. I'm so grateful that I get to share this time with you. And now if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, you can share it on your social media, you can email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. 